Welcome to the Whiskey Stories Podcast. My role really is about educating consumers and bar staff and off-trade, non-trade as to what Tom and Tell and Glencadam are. If you can get people to understand your brands and try them, you know, liquid to lips is, is a term that's often thrown about. They just sell better. If people understand why you do what you do um, and, and the quality that you're able to produce, then you're able to sell more bottles. Welcome back to the Whiskey Stories podcast with myself, Graham Kogar. We are joined away from home this evening in a tiny little pub, the smallest pub back room, front room, whatever room it is that we've ever been in. I think we would be, um, we'd be we're better off in a toilet cubicle, if I'm honest. But we're joined at Bennett's Bar. No, no offence to Bennett's Bar, of course. We're joined at Bennett's Bar in Edinburgh. Uh, and I'm joined with Angus, a whiskey fan. We've got Ross Bar and we have... Cody Reynolds joining us here. How are we, lads? Pleasure to be here, boys. It's uh, nice that we're nice and cosy because it's cold outside. And I think our body heat in this tiny little space is going to keep us all warm. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah cold, cold outside, cold inside. We're all uh, we're wrapped up warm. Uh, we certainly are. How <laughs> a are we great doing? pub. A, a good historic pub to be in. We obviously love our home from home diggers, uh, but nice to be in a different part of town as well. It certainly is. Uh, and, you know, it goes to show again if... Uh, if, if we don't make it as a whiskey podcast, we could maybe start as an Edinburgh Boozer podcast. But I would like to point out that the, the we mentioned it in the show with Kevin, I think it was episode two or three, where we said the key to knowing you're in a traditional Edinburgh Boozer is red upholstery. And we're sitting <laughs> on red upholstered seats this evening for those who aren't tuning in or to be able to see us. But we are. If you could use the theatre of the mind, we are sitting on... Nice red leather seats in a freezing cold area, Angus. But what drums have you got in front of you? Yeah, I've got a uh, Balblair 12 and a Boone Haven 12. Just kept it really, really simple. Went with what immediately was in front of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, didn't have the didn't have the benefit of uh, you know coming in here just a couple of minutes before we started recording. Didn't have the benefit of. Uh, Ordering Ross's uh, Balvenie 12 and perusing the whiskey menu. <laughs> yes, I know Angus is uh, he's a bit of a prima donna. He just turns up Cody right at the last minute, orders his drums, gets in, switches the mic on, does his bit, and then he's straight away Perhaps again. Aside, just like a panda. <laughs> Eats, shoots, and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> two good drums, Balvenie, and we're having two great drums. Ross, what are you sitting there? Uh, I've got something independent, so we've got a Carnmore uh, Glen Grant and a Stringer Rum Cask, which is interesting. And then I've got something that I think used to be a US exclusive and is now more widely available. We've got an Aberlauer Abuna Alba. So Aberlauer Abuna, but in a bourbon cask rather than their normal Oloroso influence, about 62%. So that'll keep me warm. That'll keep you going. Well, Cody, what about yourself? I think I have the same as Ross. That's he bought the round. I, yeah, I so forced Cody to yeah, he join He didn't tell me, me what it was. So I'm assuming it's also an Abelair, which yeah, I have no issues with. Yeah. And well, then what do you even you what do you have in front of yourself, Graham? Well, I'm sitting with a Glen Caram ten and a Tom and Tile ten. I don't know what made me pick <laughs> them. That's what I like to see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what we want. Cody is the European brand ambassador <laughs> for. Glenn Cadam and Tom and Tell, which is why he's here. He's also, I mean... Two best drams at the bar, boys. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I don't think you guys aren't on brand, I should say, but <laughs> I think uh, I was... Ross Ross explained to me, and we, we talk, we have a laugh, I said, look, we don't like to get too nerdy or too geeky, but he says, Cody is, is a geek, he is a nerd, he's a whiskey man, he knows what he's talking about, so it's, it's always good to have somebody that actually knows what they're talking about on this podcast. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Whiskey's fun Cody. to talk about, isn't it? And you know what? Anything that you can talk about over a whiskey is even better, so Absolutely. may as well keep it on we topic. We always say there's, there's no experts in whiskey, but Cody and I could probably put you to sleep. Um, <laughs> but we enjoy that. Yeah, we enjoy it. Yeah. If the whiskey time. doesn't put us to sleep first, Ross, yeah, that's well, the problem. Exactly. That's, that's true. true. That's true. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it's great to have you here, Cody. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. I'm sorry we couldn't get the heating on for you. <laughs> ah, it's okay. The whiskey will keep me warm. He's bought me a 62 percenter, so uh, I'm all good. Okay. If you actually hear Cody going... <laughs> <laughs> at any point during this podcast that's his first sip of that dram there but yeah we're in the, we're in this new pub we're in new surroundings but we've got another guest on so Cody uh, welcome along to the Whiskey Stories podcast thank you for coming along talk us through first of all what got you into whiskey okay so um, I do have a standard stock story that I do talk about with this um, but it is 100% true and it is the reason that I'm sitting here today um, when I, you know, well, when I was younger, my, my granddad was a massive whiskey drinker. Um, I would be sort of 
Whenever I was round, which normally was a Saturday, I'd go round and play in the garden when it was nice and warm. So that's the two months that we get of warm, sunny, sunny weather in Scotland. And I'd come in and I'd often be handed a whiskey uh, by my granddad, which my granny wasn't too happy about at the time. But and I'll tell you, back then, whiskey was bloody strong as well. I wasn't sure I was too happy with it. I'd have taken a Capri Sun at the time. But I was going through uni. Um, I was studying geography at Edinburgh University. And... I'll, I'll tell you, I enjoyed uni, but I took it because I was good at geography. Right. But, I, you know, glaciers and hills are only so interesting, and then they get pretty boring. So last year I was looking for a dissertation topic, and sadly at that time my granddad developed dementia, and he wouldn't quite remember my name or, or some of my family's name, and you sit in front of the man and you kind of see see him looking through the back of your head like, you, like you're a ghost. Um but if you mentioned whiskey to him, instant spark in the eyes. Really? You know, a smile would grow on his face. It's like he would instantly know who you were and he'd remember the fact that, you know, he'd used to try and hand you a whiskey when you were younger. And it, so I, I really fell in love with it at that point. Now, I liked whiskey going through uni, but as any uni student, I had zero money. Yeah. You'd just be buying whatever the cheapest thing at the bar was, which was a one pound shot of the worst vodka you've ever tasted in your life. Um, you'd ask for a double, they'd tell you what a double cost was, and you'd go back to a yeah. one instead. <laughs> um, so you could only afford the cheapest whiskies at the time. And when your palate's not that developed, I would say most cheap whiskey tastes reasonably similar. Yeah. When you go back, once you really know your whiskies, there's a whole depth of flavor there that you didn't find the first time. But going into whiskey when you can only afford everything under four quid or three quid, it tastes quite similar. So I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't say I fell in love with it until that moment where I was looking for a dissertation topic and I went, I'm going to do it on whiskey. Studying geography, I could relate the, the relationship between Scotland and whiskey. So how Scotland as a nation has benefited from the drink, but conversely how the drink has benefited from Scotland as an ambassador. Yeah. You know, when people say whiskey, no matter where you are in the world, they think Scotland, Ireland, America, maybe Japan these days as well. Um, and it's amazing how what was uh, an offshoot to farming, what was a poor man's drink, in Scotland now, as an ambassador, if I fly to, you know, Paris, if I fly to Berlin, if I fly to New York, if you go to Shanghai, you know, right next to your Rolexes and your your highest end things that you can get, you know, your fancy champagnes, there's Scotch whisky brands. You know, it's it's a it's a global drink now that has somehow clawed its way from being that thing that you, you hid from the tax man and was that little side side thing you had in the, the bit to be in something that is globally recognised from a tiny little place like Scotland so I absolutely fell in love with it at that point um, and after the dissertation I moved into working in whiskey as soon as I possibly could and that's yeah. kind of taken me to sitting in this seat today Yeah, I tell you what Ross, you said he was a whiskey nerd or a whiskey geek but he's a whiskey scholar for goodness <laughs> sake, come on the man's written his dissertation on whiskey for crying out I never loud. said the dissertation was any good boys. <laughs> well, what was the, what, was the, what did failed, you get? Failed miserably, you know. <laughs> what, what, what did you get for your dissertation? Did you pass? That's uh, undisclosed uh, <laughs> <laughs> It did pass, it did pass He got loads of passion and he got lots of self-determination One thing I will say which is actually a true story because people a lot of people say oh well can we read your dissertation I had one save of that dissertation which was a ballsy move normally have a lot of backups we did a big celebration uh, the night after we all helped, uh, submitted our dissertations we played uh, Ring of Fire don't know if you've ever played Ring of Fire you yeah. have a central cup and you pour different things in it my mate poured uh, a whole thing it was about half Bailey's half red wine and the rest was beer uh, onto my laptop absolutely fried it dissertation's gone really? I have no idea if there's a copy anywhere wow so oh I, when people have asked for it I was like I don't actually have one I could maybe try and claw one off that'll show up at an auction one day I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know obviously Cody's talking about being a poor student not being able to afford <laughs> afford the you know the luxuries of 18 year old Glenn Phoenix and Angus had a top shelf in his room at university where he had to play the place at an 18 year old Glenn Phoenix so why don't you let Cody know just what it was like to have a decent selection of whiskey and try to sample some decent drafts whilst you were a skint student <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I did actually have about four or five bottles on the go at, at one point and there were yeah 18 year old Glenn Phoenix which uh, ended up having a cigarette put in the end of it uh, about quarter full it was just uh, 
it just uses a bit of an ashtray. Disgrace, um, disgrace, Ross. Because, well, yeah. <laughs> well, you were like, did you go to university, Ross? I did not. No, no I've been a working man. Yeah. It's blue, you know. So we're the, we're the less educated half of the room because I wasn't one for going well, to it's university. It's one of those things that because we're so because we're blessed, we're very lucky. That I was born in Scotland. It's one of those things I always thought that maybe I would like to go and be a real old fart and study history when I'm older and something like that. that just totally appeals to me. Uh, but no, I, I thought I was going to go and do psychiatric health, which is what both my parents done. Right. And then naturally I found whiskey. There you go. Uh, and, so, <laughs> and, and kind of what I said in the first episodes where um, I was a guest and now they can't get rid of me is it's one of those things that I was just nice to everybody and whiskey gives you those opportunities. I think a really interesting part of Cody's career um, this kind of start of it is the education you can get from places like like Swee where you started yeah. just, the alumni of Swee is unbelievable now I mean, so dominates I mean, uh, for, the industry for, for the Scotch whiskey experience yeah, is, is what you're experiencing yeah. so, so that was was that a job straight after university then Cody? it was indeed yeah so again as I said I, I finished uni and I was looking to move into anything really to do with whiskey that I could um, and I was able to get the, the role at the Scotch whiskey experience now, the thing with the Scotch whisky experience is y you tend to be talking to tourists most of the time. Um, but the thing with tourists, I would say, is about 90% of them have barely tried whisky before, and then 10% knew a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, but the training at the Scotch whisky experience was excellent. Yeah. And it's not just the training, it's the people that you're with. When you have people that are also interested in whisky, what happens is, especially if you have a passion for it, you're going to work. You're learning about whiskey at work, you know, you're maybe doing staff trainings or you're learning about the new bottle that comes in the bar or you're selling bottles at the bar or you're doing a tour or whatever. And then after work, you and your mates are going to a whiskey bar much like this and you're having a dram and you're doing much like we're doing right now, you're having chats over whiskey or you're going to a tasting with an ambassador or whatever and you're learning about it there and it just becomes your life. You know, your days off are stuff like that and your days on are stuff like that, but it never feels like work doesn't matter what side you're on, you know, because you always kind of want to learn more. A couple of weeks ago, I went back to Edinburgh University for the first time in a while, actually, um, and did a tasting for their uh, Water of Life Society, which okay. is their whiskey society. Okay. Um, and I never, I was never part of the, the Water of Life Society when I was at Edinburgh, because again, m my passion really grew in that last year when my granddad fell sick. Um, but I wish I had been, because going back, like, they were such a great group, you know, and you've seen people from their first year that were joining and clearly didn't know that much, but were, were really passionate to learn, to some people that were sort of later on in um, their uni careers that were, you know, really knew their stuff. And that's just clear from the fact that they were doing the same thing I was doing when I was at SWE. They were loving whiskey, they're going out and drink whiskey, they're learning about whiskey on their time off. And it, really, you just get wrapped up in it. It's such an interesting topic. Yeah. I have so many friends that like dis different aspects of whiskey as well. You have the ones that, you know, love production. You know, they, they bloody love a worm tub and they'll just get, you know, <laughs> their heads right deep in that kind of stuff, right? You know, it's all about distillation and yeah. esters and all this crap. You have the others that love the history. It's yeah. where did we come from? How did we make it to where we are today? You know, when was it founded and who did, what hands did it pass to get to where it is? And then you have the ones that like the, the social aspect to it. Yep. And I sit somewhere in between history and social for me, which is what we're doing right now. It's you, you have a dram and you're chatting about it with people and it's a conversation starter, but it's something that you have in common with the people you're with and it just makes the night a little bit more interesting. Yeah. You know, it's... Talking to people about whiskey is incredible. I think, I think Graham's in a type of his own and that he likes warehouses. Well, I have said on this podcast before, it's no secret, I've said it out loud in the past, warehouses make me horny. And then <laughs> The smell of a dunnage. Oh, my oh, Lord. Get started, oh, you have to drag me out of my The smell of a dunnage makes Graham horny. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's something to be admired. It can bring loads of different characters, people with different backgrounds, people from all over the world together. Um, I'm more inclined to what you said, kind of social and historical side of it. You don't like a worm tub then, no? Uh, honestly, I'm not that big on worm tubs or Oregon pine washbacks or any of that kind of thing. Um, but I mean, but, but you're absolutely right because I mean, I've went, I went, I went once on a tour at uh, the Badnick Distillery, mm -hmm. and the girl was really, really interesting, but. She was a chemist by trade, yeah. so it was very, very technical. And by the time, you know, there were certain points of the tour she was talking about 
Amelie's and Ether, and it was like it, it just started to go over my head a little bit. It can, it can but equally, tough. the passion was there. Yeah. I mean, she was talking about it extremely passionately, and it's like, you know, that, that, that that's a whole different thing. Is that you know, clearly for her, it yeah. was the actual distillation. It was the and chemical, and for her, and you know, process like of making whiskey that they, really excited yeah. her. Yeah, they never do a day's work. No. You know, because the, literally they're Lazy talking now. about things My boss that they might be listening Because they're bone either, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Never get a day's work out of that code but, but, but honestly, it's just If you're talking about drams yeah. To people that are want to learn about drams Right I mean, it's I can't believe we get paid to do what we do Well, I think it, it's, it's interesting it's, what Angie said about passion, eh? Like, if it, it doesn't I, I always think and, You know, I've worked in communication And public speaking and stuff like that And one of the things is that a good communicator, a good storyteller, a person who knows and is passionate about what they're talking about can make anything sound interesting and and as you're saying, Angus, you, you've you've seen it firsthand in a situation where you've got somebody who's passionate about chemistry, who's at a distillery, and that's the area that they really, really like. But you try and get a boring person to tell you that, you'll go to sleep. But you get somebody who knows what they're talking about, number one, but is passionate about it. And I think interestingly for yourself, Cody, when you're working at the the Scotch whiskey experience and you're dealing with a large amount of tourists that are coming in um, you, you're go- there'll be people who are going in there because it's a thing that's on TripAdvisor to go to don't like whiskey yeah. but it says on TripAdvisor that I should go here when I'm visiting Edinburgh and I'm in Scotland so I might as well try some whiskey now you've got to try and engage that person make them interested and probably get them to leave going I really enjoyed that and I like whiskey now yeah, that's exactly it so I think if I remember correctly, I think the motto there was uh, make the world fall in love with Scotch whisky. But the, the interesting thing about Swee is that it's, it's owned by the industry itself. The whole point in Swee is what you've just described. It's when people come to Scotland, it's right, I want to see a castle. I want to maybe buy myself a cheap kilt from, uh, you know, one of these tartan tat shops. Uh, or maybe I'll have some whiskey because I'm in Scotland. I'll try haggis. Yeah. It's one of those tick tick boxes yeah. that they're going to do. They do the castle. Scotch whiskey experience is right there. I'll drop in. And the point of it is that they drop in because it's there, but they leave going, I actually really enjoyed that. I didn't, you know, I was doing it because it was there and we needed something else to do before dinner or before yeah. we went back. And they've left and went, that was a lot more, you know, I, I thought I didn't like whiskey. But now, actually, you know, maybe I would, maybe I would have a whiskey again. And you got that story every day of at least one person who was like, "Oh, I came came in here, didn't think anything of it, you know, and I've I've left buying a bottle, yeah. of, you know, and, and, you, and it's amazing to, to yeah. see that. You, you get to take a ride in the barrel. Do you? Oh, you, not, oh, anymore. not anymore! Not anymore! Not anymore. Oh, Is that no, gone? The, 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 oh, <laughs> as of uh, Monday, yeah. so this Monday, yeah. it's ju- the new tour has just relaunched. Yeah. No barrel. Oh. I'm as oh. devastated as you, my friend. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because two things here I want to sort of ask about the, these kind of situations. I remember you talking about. Well, I, well, with you talking about, it, I can remember speaking to somebody who was involved in bringing the um, Johnny Walker experience to Edinburgh. And one of the interesting things that they talked about is they said that you go to Amsterdam and you have the Heineken experience. You go to Dublin and you've got the Guinness experience. Now, what they said was that there isn't actually one of those in the capital of Scotland, particularly when you see it as a whiskey, you know, it's a whiskey country. Now, obviously you do because you had the, the, the whiskey experience that you worked for. Do you think the addition of having the Johnny Walker experience has had a positive or a negative impact on something like the Scotch whiskey experience? For the Scotch whiskey experience, um, I don't think it has had a negative impact. So Diageo are still in, they still have um, shares in the Scotch whiskey experience. And the good thing about the whiskey experience is it's right next to Edinburgh Castle, which is the biggest tourist attraction in Scotland. So the footfall's incredible. If If you're moving away from the Scotch whiskey experience and just meaning whiskey in general in Scotland, I think it's fantastic. So when that first came in, you'll have some people that'll think, oh, you know, they're going to, you know, be converting everyone over to Diageo brands and stuff like that. That's not an issue. What's great about the Johnny Walker experience is it takes drinkers that, again, much like we were just talking about, when going, not thinking they like whiskey or are on the fence, and leaving having tried some whiskey highballs and realising, actually, quite like a whiskey highball. It's maybe not whiskey neat but it's a whiskey highball and that you know actually i could drink that i could have that you know after work is something nice and refreshing when i don't want a gin and tonic and they they start buying bottles to have in highballs and then maybe they move on to other brands you know a a fairly consistent opinion of people within the industry that competition within whiskey 
is never negative. No, because it's all whiskey. It's the same thing. Exactly. And again, as Cody said earlier, everything that, that's sold with whiskey and, and Scotch whiskey is good for Scotland. So it can't really, you know. Exactly. I'm somebody that's been in, been in lefty as you. I don't, I don't Another know, one you've worked with. Is this I mean, honestly. A new job comes up every podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's fantastic. And it is a monster and it is colossal. And of course, it's, you, know, you can't own Guinness and Smyrnoff. And Tankery and Gordons and Gordon, yeah, and you can't own these things and not be colossal. We are looking for some sponsors. Ask them, not as they've got bigger budget. But I mean, it brings me to my next question. It's really interesting. You mentioned about the um, the footfall from the Edinburgh Castle, and I can't remember off the top of my head, Angus, about the the stat about how many Scots have actually visited Edinburgh Castle mm. compared well, to well, a tourist. Well, well, to put it into perspective, my partner, she isn't Scottish, but she's lived in Edinburgh now for, well, coming up for 10 years. She's not visited Edinburgh well, Castle in her life. And she's lived in Scotland since 20, 2008. How, how many Scottish, <laughs> how many, I mean, we, we were talking earlier on, we'll probably move on to it as well, about how often by just living in Scotland, it's so easy to take whiskey for granted about what we get on the shelves and even the fact that you know our knowledge on the uh, on whiskey itself as our own national trade effectively you know whiskey is what Scotland is very famously known for so how many people do you think listening to this if they're in Scotland that's never been I think I've never been to the the whiskey experience, Scottish whiskey experience. This is a this is a rabbit hole. I don't know if you will have wanted to bring up because I can talk about this for an hour. Like the, so the, the thing is, right, with whiskey in Scotland, a lot of the time, people like myself, where I fell in love with the drink, it's when I had a reason to stop, really look into it, and go, actually, this is incredible. Like the just everything around it, the fact we have this on our doorstep is something that we should be not just proud of but should really take advantage of yeah. um, the fact that you can go to a bar like this and have a selection that in many other countries would be the best whiskey bar in the whole country. Wow. And here it's another, it's another bar. It's in another Scotland. one, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, with the Scotch whiskey experience, you have something like the Amber Restaurant and Bar, which is downstairs. You don't have to do a tour. Any, anyone can go to that bar. It's one of the best-priced whiskey bars with a fantastic selection in it. And one of the biggest issues we had at that bar was getting locals in because they all thought you had to do a tour. It's a yeah. tourist place. Nobody goes. The, the bar well, is incredible. Sorry to interrupt. Interestingly, Ross, if I remember correctly, a few weeks ago when we were about pre-recording, yeah. you said you'd been in. It's, I, and you said yeah. it, and, and you actually went through the price of a, a couple of prices of drums. I couldn't believe it. And it's one of those things. I'm, okay, to out myself, I've done the barrel ride, the tour at Sweet, I think five times. Mm. So is Angus's missus. <laughs> she calls it the barrel ride. <laughs> and, and so I've done that. Can and you then, do that ride in nine different languages as well, Russ? No, this is the thing. My, my Mandarin isn't great, but at least she had the option. Um, and so that was really interesting. And I remember going to the Amber once for, for dinner, had a great time. I hadn't been in the bar for a long time. And yeah, I think it was an Allardyce, Glendronach Allardyce. If you, if you know whiskey, you'll know lots of people get um, very excited over old Glendronach and I think it was £9 yeah. a dram. And obviously, coming from working in the Balmoral, which obviously you're in the Balmoral in the first place, but I think we were something like 23, yeah, which, I mean, which made us cheaper than 80% of the rest of Edinburgh. But so, it was £9 in Sweet. Mm. And also to add, I actually went to Edinburgh Castle for the first time about two months ago. There you go. Sir. And I only went because I've got an American fiance who wanted to go to the castle. I mean, it's, I think, I think because it should, it should also be pointed out that generally speaking, we are brilliant at fleecing tourists. <laughs> well, um, there's <laughs> another point I want to go on with that. that. That brings us up nicely. Well done, I guess. But just, I mean, I think just very quickly on that topic is, I'm, a, I'm, I'm terrible for it as well. As you know, I try. And, my wife, she's Indian. Um, she'll see. She'll see the pubs and, and things like that on the Royal Mile in that area, and she's like, "Oh, we should maybe go there. They'll have a whiskey collection and stuff like that." And I've tried to explain to her hundreds of times, unless it's got red upholstery on the seating, <laughs> it's not a traditional Edinburgh boozer. It's a tourist trap or someplace like that. So yeah, naturally, I will probably until tonight have gone. I'm not going to the whiskey experience. Well, that's what that's the problem. Most most locals would think the same, which is you know to be honest. I understand it. Yeah. The reason the pricing is good is because it's owned by the industry, and the whole point in Swee was to get people into whiskey. Yeah. And if the pricing is quite expensive, you're not going to do oh, that. Of but on that topic, and one thing I do want to mention, it was a, f- a couple of years ago now, and I think it might have been Whitey Mackay, but don't uh, quote me on this. They came out with this the stats 
that in Scotland the average whiskey drinker who first said that they you know are a whiskey drinker was 10 years older than in London um, even though obviously the availability to get hold of Scotch whiskey was way easier here but the reasons for that was believed due to well, there was a few different reasons, but the main ones was bigger cocktail scene in London, a yeah. little bit bigger, well, bigger wages, really, as we said before, yeah. whiskey's expensive. Yeah. Um, and also that sort of stigma of it being that sort of old man's drink is kind of fading. It's now becoming a cool hip yeah. thing again in, in some of these like good cocktail locations. And I think that is coming back to Scotland. Yeah. I think a lot of these sort of like old man boozers that have yeah. the big selection are starting to try and become a little bit more flexible yeah, but you know even now if i go into a bar in scotland that has a fantastic selection um i might know more than 99 percent of people in the bar but if i buy it and there's an old boy sitting at the bar with his half drunk tenants uh, and i buy a whiskey and he'll try and tell me about it because he's sat there and i'm like have you tried it before it's like no but i know what i went to the distillery it's like i mean i work for the brand right very quickly uh, before we move because we do have to talk about what you're currently doing as well uh, on this podcast but i just talk about fleecing tourists you've done a, a dissertation uh, and studied geography and mixed it in with whiskey now part of geography you'll be looking at sort of bore Oxbow Lakes and uh, water Oxbow source. Lakes. Oxbow Lakes. Graham did get a hire on appeal in Georgia. That's my only qualification <laughs> I've got from school. But on appeal. what's always really, really interesting is, uh, you know, most distilleries are built beside a water source, or a yeah. source of water, yeah. a river, a lake, or anything like that. And the story is that a lot of the flavour that you'll get out of this whiskey it comes from the... Uh, the water source that is filtered through the heather and comes through <laughs> filtered all through the heather all the different and all, the and all <laughs> this kind of stuff right come on is it bollocks or is it true bit of both so it is bit of bollocks so bit of truth, right. right so really the water quality in Scotland no matter where you are is good right we, we have good water pretty much anywhere you go um, other countries that is not the case but it doesn't matter where you go in Scotland you can pretty much drink the tap water so I don't think there's many places where it's going to, like, you can say, oh, it's the, the purest water or any, anything like that. What you can say, though, is that some parts of Scotland are mineral heavy with their water and some have less minerals. So they've got heavier, lighter water styles. Um, now, it could be argued that those minerals can build up on the inside of your stills. And it can also be argued that it can have minute interactions in your fermentation as well with how it's interacting with the yeast, with the minerals that come through from the water. Would you notice that? Probably not. Right. right. So it's it's probably you're never really going to notice the differences. You know, like if yeah. you go to like a whiskey from um, the cities, so let's take like Ochentoshan or something from Glasgow. They're all using the same water source. Yeah. Using uh, is it Lake Catherine or something? Lake Catherine. Yeah. From yeah Glasgow, so it's, yeah. it's 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 tap water yeah. effectively. Yeah. You know. Um, so. But you say tap water doesn't sound good. You say it's crystal clear water from. You're on the hills. You've got to do He's it. geeky, but he's good, eh? No, he's good. It does depend. You know, some brands will focus on that more than others. I, I had a great tour up at Glen Farkless, and um, it was a particularly warm summer, and they said, well, do you know, we only get our water from one side of Ben Rennett's, uh, and so the water source is dried up, so we're only in production for two and a half days this week. And that's an incredible sacrifice. Yeah. If you think. He does make a difference. Yeah. So uh, uh, Dalwini had an issue with that as absolutely. well. Because um, their fluctuations in temperature can and matter a lot. And if you think lot. that right. your production today affects what you're going to produce in 20 years, 25 years, for you to commit to, we're only using our water source and it's dry, so I'm only in production for two and a half days this week, that is something to be admired. But if you think that the reality is it, it's the fantastic Glen Kinchy that I like to champion, if the Kinchy burn had dried up, if you think there would not be tankers of water coming into Glenkinchy every single day to keep that water up, you're purely naive. And really? so, some, so, yeah. so, some, so some brands can do it, some brands cannot. There's a quota to be met. Obviously, it's great to be at Glenfarclas. It's family-owned, and they can say that, listen, that's how we've done it, that's how we're always going to do it. It might make their whiskey more expensive in 20 years. It might not. But if you're Glenkinchy and 80% of your production, 1.8 million litres, goes into... Um, dimple or pinch as it's now known there's a market that needs fulfilled there yeah. and so they can't deal with their water source drying up so exactly what Ross is saying is actually one of the, the most important things when you're talking about water source and it's um, constant availability yeah. um, it's 
that's why most whiskey distilleries will use like boreholes down and they'll, they'll get it from something that, that's just theirs and no one else is getting access to it it's about having a constant supply that you can doesn't matter if it's warm in the summer or you have a particularly cold winter nothing's freezing up nothing's drying up you want to be able to get access to your water all the time yeah. and that is one of the most important things in other countries water quality can be a real issue when building distilleries but no matter where you go in Scotland it's better than London tap water I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So, Angus Dundee PLC, talk to me. That is your official employer, but it makes Indeed. you a brand ambassador for the two single malt distilleries that they have, which is uh, Glen Cadam and Tom and Till. So, what got you into that then? How did that come around? So, um, we've talked about the Scotch whiskey experience. Um, I left university, I moved to the Scotch whiskey experience. I sort of um, went through all the ranks, I guess, in the Scotch whisky experience, from being standard tours and doing the bar, doing the shop, to being senior guide, to being on what they call the tasting team, where you had to pass exams and things to do that. And then I would do off-site tastings for them as well. We then got to COVID, where everything shut down. Um, during COVID, I set up a, um, a website called Whiskey Tastings Online, where I would state what where all the uh, online tastings because every brand yeah like there was no whiskey shows every brand suddenly had to clamor to go online and do these online tastings so i would state basically there's a glen turret one at five o'clock on here's the link oh, there's really? a, you so know, you like a yellow pages because i was i was on most of these tastings my partner um moa so a swedish whiskey girl on instagram if you want to give her a follow yeah um she would be invited along to a lot of these things because she does uh, a lot of uh, online stuff already so she was someone that a lot of brands would turn to to promote their stuff so i was getting privy to all the, the information that she was being sent so i started that and then we kicked back up after covid um and i saw the job come up for angus dundee distillers and it just felt like the right time to move on um, and I'm, I'm very happy to be there. Angus Dundee are one of the few family-owned companies that are really left in Scotland. Most Scottish distilleries these days are owned by big multinationals. Um, and much like the story I've already talked about, my journey with whiskey sort of started through family. So to, to work for a family company sort of really resonated with me. Um, I already liked both brands as well. So it was a, a really smooth transition, I would say, especially since talking about whiskey is what I said I... Um, I like most about the industry so the job's not a job as Ross put it <laughs> yeah I mean brand ambassador to to uh, to two distilleries then I mean for anyone listening who's going what what is a brand ambassador what does a brand ambassador do what what is your job it's essentially I know that you travel around a lot but what what is it that you've got to do it's a good question, actually. Um, so there's lots of aspects to it. And brand ambassador is, is quite a, a catchment sort of term. And, and different BAs will have different aspects to their role that they have to focus on. So you'll have BAs that are quite sales focused. You'll have BAs that are in charge of particular markets and, and need to make sure that uh, stock is getting to those markets and is being sold well and helping to promote it in those markets as well. For myself, it's about brand education. So that's where my BA sort of role sort of fits into. So I'm sort of more in marketing terms than, than sales. Um, so I cover all of, of Europe. I do global stuff as well, but it's mainly Europe and the UK for me. Mm -hmm. um, so my role really is about educating um, consumers uh, and bar staff and uh, off-trade and on-trade as to what Tom and Tell and Glen Cadam are, what the values are, why they're good brands. And if you can get people to understand your brands um, and try them, you know, liquid to lips is, is a term that's often thrown about. Um, they just sell better. <laughs> it, it's, it, you know, even if it's not a direct sales job, if, if people understand why you do what you do um, and, and the quality that you're able to produce, then you're able to sell more bottles. So for me, I would go to different places. So I'm in um, Brussels this weekend, in Belgium. I'm in the Netherlands the weekend after that. And you're getting married. And then I'm getting married the weekend after that. <laughs> uh, and then the weekend after that, I'm in, I'm in Italy. I'm in Milan. So, so you're a busy boy. I'm a very busy boy at this time of year. Um, and this is the busiest time of year for, for brand ambassadors coming right? up to Christmas. Oh, absolutely. It's the absolute rush. You have shows every single weekend in a different market. Um, and you'll meet the same people on the road. So I'll meet 
Uh, we have like an ambassador chat that you'll say, oh, who's in Brussels this weekend? Oh, no, I'm in Copenhagen. Oh, I'm in Copenhagen as well. Like you get to sort of know where people are and you know the same faces. So it's 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 great. It's like meeting friends abroad a lot of the time because you all, you all share the same passion. You might be repping different brands, but at the end of the day, you know, after the show is done, you're doing much like we are doing now. You can just sit and have a dram or have a beer together and it's fantastic. So um, it's just about letting the rest of the world understand how bloody good Scotch whiskey is. Absolutely. And if you do that, you'll sell bottles. Well, it's interesting, Angus, because we had Hazel McLeod, who works for um, right. William Grant and Sons, and, and she was saying about how her job, she's sales. So she's, her patch is Edinburgh area. She's yeah, going to try she's get... going into bars, into golf clubs. Yeah, and it's a competitive and cutthroat. And hard sell, yeah. And, and it's sales, and it's competitive, and it's cutthroat. But mm. yeah, she said exactly the same thing as, as you said, Cody, is the fact that it's like, no, you know, I know the people who are doing the exact same thing for the other brands. And we're, we're actually quite good pals. And sometimes we will all get together and have a drink up and chat about this and chat about that. There'll be a bit of friendly banter about who, oh, well, yeah, but try our gin and tonic or try our whiskey or single malt or our blend. But ultimately, it's fascinating that, you know, in, in the industry that is whiskey and in the market that is so big of whiskey, you look at how many whiskeys are out there and how many brands are out there, and you would expect to see them all fighting over each other to try and get who could be, I want more people to be drinking this one. But yet, everybody that we seem to speak to it's like, oh, we're just all good pals, eh? We all just, we all just get together. It's different to other um, drinks industries in a sense. Now, don't get me wrong, there's still obviously going to be a competitive nature of getting your stuff yeah. on the shelves. You need to if you want to. Well, I mean, Hazel did say that she often, once she's left the place, she'll let the, the tires down of the other folks she's yeah, seen yeah, coming yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> but, you know, compared to other brands, um, trading within companies in whiskey is something that's happened almost since the start. So yeah. blends, you know, were, were built really is, uh, give me, you know, 500 casts of your stuff and I'll give you 500 casts of mine. So you need to be on good terms with a lot of companies because you're still, you know, trading stuff with them. You know, you still might need their spirit for your blends if you're a blending company and they might, you know, be able to buy some of your stuff in the future as well. So if you cut ties with everyone, you know, that, that, that grinds to a halt and that aspect of your business dies where in other drinks, you know, um, industries, it's it's a case of you just sell your stuff. You're not trading with anyone. You're, you're brewing your beer, you're selling your bottles uh, or your cans or whatever. Um, and it doesn't really matter what the others do as long as you're doing it better. Yeah. With whiskey, you know, you need to be friendly to, to an extent with other people because you rely on them as much as they rely on you if they if you need their stuff and they need yours. So yeah. there, there is that aspect which other other um, drinks don't have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it is interesting. With the greatest respect in the world, you know, Glenn, Glenn Cadam and Tom and Tell, they're not like the, you know, they're not in people's islands. <laughs> but they're not. They're, if you were to ask, you know, if you were to go and ask the... I think uh, Tom and Till is a more recognisable yeah. brand. But I mean, it, it must be a challenge as well for you. And how is that a challenge for you to get? Because people always resonate with brands. There's always, a, a, and it's funny that, it's like what you you talked about the old boy that's sitting at the pub having a, a half pint of lager or whatever, and he'll tell you that the best whiskey in the world is Highland Park because... I've drank Highland Park yeah. all my days and it's it's the best dram in the world. I, I think a good way of putting it as well is that um, Glen Cadam's a whiskey that I love. I think the, the liquid is fantastic. But I only know Glen Cadam because of my experience in the on-trade and working in different situations. It's a lot to do with history, is what we're talking about. It's, it is, what did your grandfather drink? What did your father drink? I imagine, although Glen Cadam's one of my favourite whiskies out there, I imagine there's far more people come up to you, Cody, and say, well, I know Tom and Till, what the hell's a Glen Cadam? Absolutely. And, and so that's kind of bizarre from my point of view, but actually just goes to show it is all about, you know, what are the, what are the challenges? Because I suppose you've got two whiskies with two completely different markets. That's absolutely correct. Um, and I think for us, it's, it's a challenge, but at the same time, I think we've got so much scope for growth that it, we're in, it's it's a it's almost a promising time for us. I think it's it's mainly just a, an aspect of of as I said before, liquid to lips. When you actually get people to try things like Glencadam, they will realise how good it is. Um, you've got so many great new distilleries popping up as well that are just filling the shelves um, when it comes to just getting out there and you know let let's try your stuff. And when I come in, it's like oh, do you want to try Glencadam? They're like oh, we're Where's this distillery been built? It's like, well, it was built, in, you know, Angus, but it was built 200 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, like, it's oh, been okay, around, okay. Eh? okay, they just assume it's like another, a new one if they've not heard of it, you know. 
Um, so we have that on our on our side as we've got we've got the history and it's about getting those brands out there. Angus Dundee Distillers was started as a blending company and was you know much as the heart and soul of the company uh, to the day. But we have these two fantastic single malt brands and it's about education again on my, on my side of things. It's about getting into these bars, letting the bar staff try them, understand them, maybe doing some sort of masterclass with with the bar staff, getting it behind the bar. And when you get it behind the bar. They're the ones that become the, the brand ambassadors. Of, the power of word of mouth they, is yeah. unbelievable. Right. A good bartender is the best bar, uh, brand ambassador you'll ever have. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that. I mean, it's like when, you know, you, you look at it, we, we talked about with Hazel and I said about challenges that she has in the sense that she works for a company, William Grantson's, who have big brands, Balvenie and uh, Glenfinney. And... You know, people often sometimes go, Ugh, you know, I'm not interested in them. I, I, will, I want the more niche and bespoke and stuff like that, which is, I suppose, like you've just said, you'll have people that are going, oh, is that a new distillery that's just popped up? But actually, it's been around for years and years and years. So no one loves better. You were good at it, Ross, when you worked at the, uh, at the Scotch Bar, when you say, well, I know what you like. You like this. You know, but I can get you this. It's from a nice wee distillery up in Brecon, or, or a, a, yeah. you maybe never tried it before. Yeah. But have a little drink of that, and, and suddenly you feel you almost feel like you're getting invited into the inner circle mm. a little bit because you're like, oh, I'm I'm drinking something that yeah. the stand-up yeah. punter doesn't yeah. drink. And, and and interestingly enough, I think it might even have been at Scotch that uh, I, I quite like my peated whiskey, and someone, I think it was at Scotch, someone said try Old Ballantyne, which is. Yes, Tom yeah. style brand, yep, yep, yep. Um, and it's not a bottle you probably see all too that often. Um, but it's it's a great little, you know, non-aged peated space side whiskey, um, and and for my palate, I find I think it's absolutely yeah. fantastic, yeah. a fantastic little dram. I think from from the non trades point of view, if the liquid is brilliant, it will speak for itself. Yeah. If, if mm. Cody comes to me and says, "Ross, I think you're going to love this," and I do love it, the next. If I really love it, eighty percent of my clientele could be tasting that whiskey in the next week. Well, that, that's but, like, but, but, actually that is colossal. Yeah. And, ah. But again, my point was that this is a word of mouth thing. Yeah, that wasn't absolutely. something I just independently saw on a shelf and said, "I'll try that." A good barman, and this yeah. is the thing: it's like if you it, it, look, we've talked about it when we're at diggers. We, you talk about when you're here, you turn up at a, a pub like this, which has got a massive whiskey selection, and sometimes you're 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 looking around going, well, "Where do I start?" Yeah. And you're looking around, and, and you're naturally always going to be drawn to the bigger brand that's on the shelf, because you know, I know that, and I know that, and I like that. And I like this. Whereas if you've got a decent barman that'll say, right, tell me, tell me what you like. Tell me what, you, what, what kind of whiskey do you drink? What do you like? Yeah. And then suddenly you can say, right, try this one. And that's the hardest part of somebody like Hazel's job, is that she can take on new accounts and have new entree venues to visit and actually all of her liquid will already be on the back bar and that's a whole different style of challenge you've got Cody's trying to get okay most places will have Tom and Tool especially places with red upholstery they're going to have Tom and Tool but when it comes to Glen Caddam it isn't an easy first whiskey it's a whiskey that because it's higher ABV because it uses more challenging casks etc etc and maybe you don't know it so well it is more intimidating if you come in Glenferric and Balvenie are going to be that to those shelves so Hazel's got the problem of how do I keep the bartenders interested in that product how do you keep them happy with something that's been there longer than they have and so that is the amazing thing about a back bar and whiskey and, 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 and interestingly enough I mean from my own point of view if someone was to come to me and said look I've never tried scotch whiskey before I'd like to try scotch whiskey but I know nothing about it Tom and Tal's the kind of whiskey I would be recommending because it's yeah. very kind of light and gentle. Yeah. It's not going to hit the back of your throat in a way that. But you have to know it. You have to know. But this is it. Yeah. You have to know that. But exactly, I would say 100%. that. It, it, it's, you know, it would be not. And, and if you come into, I'm going to mention them again. I managed to not mention them that once in that last episode. But Cameron, if you go into Scotch at the Balmoral and you think oh. about how fancy the bar is and all the rest of it, and you're new to whiskey and you ask him what you should have, nine times out of ten he will recommend a Glenfiddich. And that's because he loves the brand, he believes in the brand, it's beautifully consistent, uh, and, and therefore that it's a really safe bet. You've never drank whiskey before in your life. Here's a Glenfiddich 12. Well, I mean, and was, that's, that's a great start. Well, it was like in, in last episode, we talked to Jan Damon, who, and he talked about his three drams, and the what three drams, usually everyone goes to their first one, and he goes, Crag and Moore 15. SMWS, cash strength. And you're going, 
you know, you could have asked me a hundred times to pick a dram for somebody to have <laughs> their first ever dram, and with no disrespect to Craig and Moore at all or that that whiskey, I'd never have picked that off the shelf. But again, it was somebody who's somebody been, guided them. You knew about that. So, so in terms of like brand ambassadors, so you're flying around the world basically. What's really interesting is you mentioned about the blinding side of things. Now, another part of the the culture within Scotland versus the culture around the world is. You know, everyone kind of over here says, "Ah, we're over blends now." You know, blends are some of my granddad drank when he was uh, drinking his bells or his grouse or something like that. Whereas, you go abroad, nine times out of ten, it's it's blended whiskey that you're going to see versus the single malt. Now, the distilleries that you work for are the single malt distilleries. They've got their own bottling, single malt bottlings. But originally, I'm assuming that those were used for to supply the blends and things like that. Yep, still are. Um, so, I mean. So standing on the, the shoulders of giants is what single malts do. The, the blends are, are the, the foundations of everything that, that we have at the moment and, and built on in the past. Um, again, it, it can be often overlooked in, in Scotland and also within the sort of nerd whiskey community that are in these bubbles where it's, single malts are what are talked about. Or if it's blends, it's you know, maybe higher end uh, niche indie blends that have been put together. Um, and and the standard, you know, forty percent on every shelf blend is is often overlooked, and I think you can almost not realise how important those are to the most important single malts. Even your big boys, even your your Grants and your Diageos and your Pernos, you take away their core blend, and yeah. those big single malt brands that they own as well absolutely crumble. Blends are super super important to Scotland. Um, you know, started when blendings, you know, first started, um, and they had the, the the whiskey barons of like the early 1900s with the Walker family and the Dewar's brothers and James Buchanan and all that. If you look into their stories, they're absolutely amazing. You know, those guys were marketeers. They're the people that put Scotch whiskey on the map. It wasn't single malts that put Scotch whiskey on the map. It was blends that were being put packed on ships yeah. and taken to these countries that have never heard of Scotch whiskey. And you know, 20 years later, you know they're clamouring to get hold of Scotch whisky, and it, it all started back back when blends were in their heyday. Now, a lot of people will say that blends are no longer in their heyday, but as soon as you look at how what the percentage breakdown is between blends and single malts, you quite will be humbled very quickly yeah, 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 yeah. when you realise how important blends are. Um, I will never say a bad word about any blend, no matter what it is, because you have to take it at face value is, is that is the liquid that has put Scotland where it is when it comes to Scotch whisky is the cheap affordable quality blend yeah. I mean it's interesting we, we, we've talked about and you've mentioned it yourself about how in this episode we've talked a lot about how people grab on affiliation with it now as Scots we kind of it is, there's a nice feeling Angus when you arrive at a, a, a foreign um, you know you go abroad and and there's Haddington House Haddington in House. Japan. <laughs> the Haddington House blend in Japan. It's there. Or or you, you get off the plane, like my, I say, my wife, she's in there, go Bangalore. The first thing you see when you get off at the terminal is the walking man, Johnny Walker, and there is a full sort of area of um, travel scotch that you can buy. You go into bars uh, anywhere in the world and you see there's our, that's see our little country that's our yeah. dram up there yeah. but, it's but also, yet sorry I guess but, yeah. but 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 the point is is we, we get emotionally attached to this as our thing right we love the stories behind the distilleries and the single malt but yet we're so quick over in Scotland to just chuck away the blend which is exactly just like what you said Cody is the the sort of principle the whole foundation of the whole of the scotch industry is built on blended whiskey and yet it's something that in scotland so many people will just turn their nose up now nah, it's a blend it's, it's rubbish it can't be any good yeah i mean one thing that there's a way that i often describe the sort of whiskey journey that you often go on when you first get sort of enamored with, with scotch whiskey and i did explain this to ross really drunk in uh, black cat recently which is that you start on blends because they're nice and affordable and it's like the thing at the bar I'll, I'll buy a blend when you push past that you'll move to your your single malts whatever that may be that's kind of an affordable approachable single malt a glenfiddich 12 whatever from there you tend to move to bold flavors so it'll be a big sherry cask or a big peaty boy or something like that something a bit bolder something a bit more experimental something west coast or whatever it may be from there, you go past that, 
and you go, you crank up the ABVs. Oh, actually, I really like smoky whiskies. Let me try it at cast strength. Yeah. Oh, I really like sherried whiskies. Let me try it at cast strength. And a lot of people sort of stop at that point where it's like really strong. From there, you'll tend to move into indies. So like you've, you've tried the core range stuff. You've tried the strong versions of the core range stuff. Let me try it from an independent bottler who's bottling it. And this is, you know, maybe I'm trying a, a Dalmore and a bourbon cask or something that I've not tried before. Um, and from there, you, you've tried that and you look right the way back down to sort of straight bourbon cast stuff because yeah. straight bourbon often goes under the radar because at the start, it's quite, it's all quite light and delicate and your palate quite can't pick out the flavours as easy as it could a sherry cask and a PX cask to a bourbon. But once you've went all the way around that circle, you're like, actually, I can totally tell the difference between a Glen Lossie and a, and a Glen Elgin and uh, a Glen Caddo. Like, you can notice those differences and you really appreciate it. After that, you go right back to the start and you go, actually, if you, just, if you try the cheap blends, yeah. you do a lineup of cheap blends, yeah. you can find, actually, that's actually a really good cheap blend. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's actually much better than I actually thought. It's better than that one, which is actually garbage. All but right. this one is, is actually really good. And then you just go around the circle and you stay where you want. But it's that sort of, as your, as your palate develops, you know, some people will never pass certain points. They'll yeah. stay at, I only drink cast strength Islas and I don't touch anything else. Fine, that's, yeah. that, that's fair enough. But if you do decide to push past that, you can go on this sort of merry-go-round of once your palate's fully developed that you can really appreciate a good blended whiskey. It's quite remarkable, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, I would agree with that. That's almost kind of mirrors... <laughs> Where are you, Angus? Exactly. Cast well, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean I was, I've got a bottle of wild turkey at home that I've been drinking, <laughs> yeah. so I reckon I'm at the bourbon stage. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fascinating when you, when you look at it from that cycle, but it, what's also fascinating is, and you look back at I think it was like one of the first single malt adverts was Glenn Fiddick saying, uh, what, what is it they called themselves... Um, like recipe malt or something like okay. that where they basically said like this is what goes in like if you like grants then try this because this is part of the ingredient I think it was ingredients malt or something like that they said this is the ingredients yeah. that goes into grants or something, something along those lines they have a pure malt is that what it was Glenfiddich if I remember correctly I can't remember it was the, in- pure, the pure malt was 1963 mm-hmm. was the first marketed single malt whiskey yeah. um, as, a, as a product which I mean that's the first single malt ever marketed as a single it's malt incredible 1963 was yesterday as yeah. far as Scotch whiskey is oh, concerned, 100%, but, it's but, unbelievable. But what I love is, like, I remember trying the, it's one of the foreign flora, Inchgower, I think it's a 14, if I'm right. Inchgower 14, yeah, Inchgower. that's the foreign flora one. And someone was telling me, you try this, you'll, you'll love it. It's an independent bottle, it's a bit briny, it's, it's, and I tasted it straight away. I was like, how have I tasted that before? And someone's like, well, that's that's one of the sort of main ones that goes into Bell's. And you're like, suddenly, boo, Cardu tried that. I'm going, that's familiar, Johnny Walker. And then you're, yeah. you go through all the different sort of... And it is fascinating when you get to that date stage. Everybody has their favourite blend. No. There's got to be reasons for that. Yeah, I mean, when, yeah. When, 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 you, when you start to explore the fact that, like, with blends, you can say, well, you like the creaminess of that Ballantine, so try this Glenburgie or Milton Duff. Or, yeah. you like, and, and suddenly you get that that element of it all kind of starts to click into place a little bit and I can see exactly why when you're saying at that cycle when you've gone through that whole stage where you've tried yeah. to get to that phase the, the, the end of the phase that you've explained Cody you've had to try a lot of whiskey a couple yeah and then when you get to that stage where you're trying you're back to the blends again you're tasting it yeah. suddenly the flavour profile makes a lot more sense because you're going well I can absolutely see where they're getting that flavour from because it's coming from the that, that distillery that I've tried and things like that. So, I mean, with yourself then, travelling abroad, is it a challenge then when you go to some countries to actually say, look, I know you love the blends, right? After speaking up blends so much, now you've got to go to them and say, try the single malt, guys. I wouldn't say it is really, to be perfectly honest, but the reason for that is the people that you're talking to in those markets, you tend to be often preaching to the converted. If you're at a whiskey show, the people who have paid a ticket to go into a whiskey show are... They have an appetite. They have an appetite for single malts, yeah. They're not... It's If you're going into a bar in a random place and trying to convert the guy who's only ever drunk um, Grants and he just drinks Grants every day and trying to convert him over, that's that's a challenge. Yeah. But that's not an aspect that I have to do too often. So yeah. um, for me, often if I am going in and talking to bartenders in good whiskey bars or restaurants abroad or whiskey shows abroad... You're talking to people that have paid a ticket to be there or are paid to sell whiskies and are, are already have a passion. So a lot of the time there, it's not that difficult. Um, however, there are you know markets where it's dominated by blends and for people that do have to sell at those markets, 
then yes, that would be a challenge. Yeah. It's just not part of my, my yeah. role, so it's fine. So talk, yeah. talk to me about the largest bottle of whiskey in the world then. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow, uh, the next bit has to come up. Sadly, that is actually, I think it's a Macallan these days. We did have oh, the biggest one. Oh, yeah, really? So 105.3 litres of 14 yeah. year old Tom and Tao. Yeah, that was just like, about enough for about half a glass Swedish house party, I think. I think it's about half past eight. Was it up at Sweet at one point? It was up at Sweet at one point, and then it was held in Tom and Tao. You can now see it at Tom and Tao Distillery. It's just in the door as you come in. Yeah. Um, it's a bit four foot two. Yeah, it's, it's an not, absolute mammoth. It's not that much taller than it. Yeah, so um. McAllen, I think McAllen made one slightly bigger through Murray McDavid or something. Um, and theirs was for charity. It was a 30 year, 30 year old, I think. So I can't say anything bad about it. But I do want our marketing team to do one that's 25 milliliters bigger than theirs. Yeah. Like one, just, one just that spike. <laughs> no, you've got to take it back. You yeah, know, this pride right. at stake, boys. This pride at stake. <laughs> yeah, the largest bottle of whiskey in the world wars that seems to be going on. That's fascinating. But also, I mean, I'm interested in Glen Cadam because, it, you know, it, it was mothballed. And what's really interesting about when you have a mothballed distillery, so first of all, do us a favour and explain, so if anyone's listening to this that doesn't understand or know what mothballed actually means in, in whiskey terms, but also, you know, what happens to the stock of a mothballed distillery? And then that, it was reopened in sort of 2000, so you're sort of coming up for 24 years now, mm. where there'll be stock that hadn't been made, or that, that, that was made over 24 years ago, and it sat gathering dust and has the distillery got any exciting plans for any of that stuff so well to start um, mothballed to simplify it effectively means it was production was stopped so it was closed down but nothing was sort of taken away you know you're basically on hold waiting for um, to basically see if there's going to be another buyer or if you're going to kick back up again um, if you're mothballed for a long period of time yes you may have to replace some equipment, make sure everything's running fine, but it's effectively, it's still there, you're just not producing spirit. Now, Glencadam was mothballed by the previous owners to us in the year 2000, and then it was actually kicked back up again by us in 2003, so there was a three-year production gap um, for Glencadam. Um, now, if you're generalizing it, that sort of other stock can either, it depends on the sale, so we purchased it off the previous yeah. uh, owners, and depending on the terms of the sale, the previous owners might be like, oh, you can buy our distillery, but we're keeping the stock and they can sell the stock. Or we might buy the distillery, but we get hold of the stock or get hold of a, a certain amount of the stock. For us, the issue is that we have that three year hole in our, in our stock. So that has ran through our range um, continuously throughout the single malt releases that we've released at Glencadam. So it hit our 15 year old, which was the first single malt release that we had. And it uh, meant that we came out with a 13 year old as sort of a replacement, which is actually still part of our range. It's very good. Um, it hit our um, 18 year old, which disappeared. And we've just got it back this summer. So Glencadam 18 year old is just back on the market, having been away for about three ish years uh, and it's currently hitting our 21 year old so we don't have uh, really any stock of that so you just kind of have this hole that sort of runs up now other distilleries do it slightly different so Glendronic had that thing where like you you could look it up and you could see that there was older stock going into it than it might stated so it might have said it was an 18 year old but you could see that there was some 21 year old going in there yeah. we didn't have the stock supply to be able to do that so it was just the way it worked and what we had perhaps uh, access say that the owner to. knew he was on his way out anyway maybe because it not make much sense that have 15 year old whiskey with 21 year old stock in it yeah, yeah. exactly but it's still an issue in the sense that it is sort of slowly running up our range and we just have this sort yeah. of chasm um, where you look to try and pick up something that's 19 or 20 years old from um, from Glencadam if you want to use it for a single malt release or for blending purposes for anything else and it's just not there um, but for us three years isn't too bad if you go to other distilleries they'll be mothballed for far longer and then it becomes uh, more of an issue yeah I, th I think talking about Bladnock that was another one that was dis uh, mothballed but mothballed for a much longer period yeah. so I think there was about eight or nine maybe even longer and that just you know you look at what they're releasing and it's clearly had a huge effect yeah and so now you've got obviously Brora restarted production and mm. Rosebank have been bought over by somebody else and their restarted production it's been over 20 years since they've produced anything so a really strange time because you can essentially disconnect this previous spirit to the one now if 
your if your rose bank because the stills are different. Yeah. I mean, how do you how, so how do you you can you can try and triple the still, but if your stills were nicked, there's nothing you can really do about it. Whereas maybe somebody like Brora, they'll try and recreate a similar spirit. It's the same owners, but it's, it's a hard thing to comprehend. And then from a whiskey investment point of view, lots of people are jumping ship. Lots of people are holding on to the old stuff. Well, Portel and reopening, etc., etc. It's uh, it's such a it's such a confused market. Um, but the good thing about something like like Adam, in my opinion, is I think it's very good at a young age. It's, I'm Absolutely. Not, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not had much time, Adam. I've had the 25, which of course is ridiculously tasty. Well, I've had the 25. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but the 15's my favourite. You know? well, I mean, it, it's interesting because talking about, I mean, you mentioned about the 21 and things like that, and you've got limited stock of that. So if someone's listening to this and going, try and get hold of a bottle of 21 now because they know that maybe there's going to be a gap, there's going to yeah. be reduced stock levels, that will then. We always talk about the sort of whiskey collectors. We always talk about whether whiskey is better to be drunk or sitting on someone's shelf. But there are people out there that that do go out there and look for rare whiskies and anything that's got a bit of a difference to it. So if someone is listening to this and thinking, no, "I'll get myself a bottle of Glencardin 21 because they know that there's going to be limited stocks," does that instantly suddenly start creating more of a a buzz about that whiskey? About that, it so suddenly it puts the name in the marketplace a bit more because people kind, are kind of but so the issue with Glencadam again it's it's big in that sort of really whiskey nerd community but like it doesn't it's just not known uh, outside of that like wait, in till the mass I, market. wait till this podcast episode yeah, yes, that, honestly wait till this, it's going to change this, my this life places, yeah, yeah. Glencadam's going to blow up they're going to have to get you know, you need to be one of these sort of big investment ones you know your McAllen's or your Ardbeg's or your your even like Brucladdy's and you know something that really has a big sort of com- uh, or Springbank's like collector community where if people know it's not going to be there, it, the prices will just absolutely climb. Yeah. Like Adam, like the, the 21 will come back when we have the stock of it. Whether it'll be identical to the old 21, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out when it comes back. Um, so for me, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't go and pick up a bottle of 21, you know, and I work for the brands. I've got half a bottle left in my flat that I'm holding on to because I want to try and compare it when the new 21 yeah, comes, yeah. but that's going to be a few years down the line. Um, but... It's, it's a different sort of ball game these days because that was never a thing in the past where, you know, should we hold on to it or not? You know, when it comes to collections, you had the people that liked to collect, but it was more of a passion project. But this sort of this sort of um, hunt for whiskies for monetary value it has been something that's really taken off in the last 10 years, probably less than yeah. that. When you're seeing the prices that whiskies are going for, where they're climbing and what you can do when it comes to just buying a whiskey and flipping it almost instantly online, um, I have no issues with that. Again, it's all money for Scotland. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a whiskey drinker, so I'm going to open the bottle if I get it. But if you like to invest, you like to invest. I don't really have a, have a problem with it. But um, as long as people are buying buying bottles of whiskey, that it, it helps us out. Well, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned about you're getting married very soon, so you, you've also given her a name check. We've given her another, your wife. She works in the whiskey industry as well. Yeah, she brings more bottles of whiskey in to the flat than I do. So, yeah, she's uh, she does a lot of sort of social media with whiskey and things like that. She was away over in Ireland the last few days visiting a few distilleries, um, and uh, we have uh, far too many bottles of whiskey in the flat. I will say that right now, it's getting a bit chaotic, but it's it's really good to have that because you know, being able to go to a pub just with her if I'm on, on a date night and do what we're doing as a group of lads tonight and just sitting down and have some drams and chat about the whiskies. it's really great you know the, the magic that I get doing a podcast like this where you're just having whiskies, chatting about whiskey with people that like to talk about it I can do that with my missus on a, what on a else Saturday do you, I mean, is there anything else that you talk about <laughs> you don't need to I don't even know her second name but <laughs> <laughs> it's a right. situation that's just four Scottish Scottish guys with four non-Scottish partners. Ah, there you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is probably uh-huh. pretty niche. Yeah, all the, yeah, all yeah. the good ones are taken. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, right. So as is tradition on the uh, on the podcast, we always ask our guests the what three dram feature. So any three drams that have any kind of reason, story, or anything behind behind it, why you've picked them. Be interesting to see if you've gone on brand for your three three drams. I mean, I will say one on brand. Um, oh no, there's two at least. Oh, I'll, rope, I'll rope them together. I'll rope them to the, together and do. Yeah, we're getting four drives. You're getting four drives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm roping them together and doing, doing, doing one story. So, right, I'll start with. Um, right, I'll do White Mackay, 
standard okay. bog standard white Mackay with Tom and Sell 10. I'm going to bring those two together. Right. The reason for that is both of those whiskies were whiskies that were on my granddad's shelf. Yeah. When I came in from playing football and he was trying to hand me a whiskey, it was it was standard white Mackay and Tom and Sell 10 was an affordable single malt. So if he yeah. was feeling a bit fancy and he wanted to give me a single malt so I could sit down and watch Hearts lose on a Saturday, <laughs> I could he'd, he'd give me one of those. Um, so I have real emotional connection to Tom and Tell because of it, um, and also connection to White Mackay when. And my granddad did finally pass away. I bought a bottle of uh, White Mackay 13-year-old, which was a limited edition. I don't think they make it anymore. And I still have that in the box in, in the house and has a special place in my heart because of it. Because it was, I bought it the day he passed and it always reminds me of him. Um, but Tom and Straight Tom Sell 10 was like that affordable malt he could pick up in his local newsagents for a good price. And that was like his, you know, his fancy whiskey. He wasn't, he wasn't a rich guy. So, you know, you know just standard Tom and Sell 10 was a big whiskey for him when it wasn't a blend. That's, that's a strong. That's, I mean, it, it's, it's such a consistent uh, theme where it's like the first of the yeah. what three drams. It usually is down the line of yeah. either the kind of first whiskies you're trying or a whiskey that does have some sort of uh, you know emotional connection with. Brilliant, yeah. fantastic. Okay, right. Whiskey number two. Um, oh, I've got so many. What would I do? I'll do Glencarron fifteen simply because. He's good, eh? He's, he's, he's mixing the two brands that he works I've for put, together. Put there, really. I've put both in. I've put both in. But 15-year-old. Because um, I said I just... Just because I said I liked it there, was it? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I bought a mini of Glencarron 15 at my old job. We were okay. at Golf Tavern, which is just round the yeah. corner from yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, had all my friends round for New Year's. Green uh, upholstery in there. It, it was a fantastic night. Um, a lot of stories from that night that I'm legally never allowed to try, uh, say again. It was very boozy. <laughs> Um, New Year's night, went out into the meadows, watched the fireworks over Edinburgh Castle, sung Old Lang Syne. I remember looking at my partner's eyes at the time, opening up that Glencadam 15 and cheering a dram and thinking, this is the best whiskey in the world. Like, I just, it, at that moment, it just was amazing. I was like, this is going to be a great year. Uh, the year was 2020. It was the crappiest year of my fucking life. Uh, it was absolute goddamn awful. I was on furlough within about four weeks at that moment. People still ask the best moment of 2020 was. It was about 16 seconds in with that Glen Caddo 15-year-old. Um, and so, I believe you brought a bottle of that in for us each. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, right. That's it's very kind of you. The room's a bit small. I can't remember where I put it. Um, but yeah, that's another one. And, and the last one that I'll mention is... Um, Standard uh, famous grips, and the reason I'm bringing up the grips, I'm bringing up the grips because the first legal drink of whiskey I ever yeah. had was straight famous grips. I had it at the Balmoral. It was my uh, Jesus, don't look at me. Uh, <laughs> I had it at the Balmoral. It was my prom. Um, I oh, just okay. turned 18 years uh, old. We had our prom at the Balmoral. Um, oh, I, I went up to the bar pulled out that shiny pink driver's license that showed that I was 18 years old and I thought what is the coolest drink I can order right now and impress all the girls I'm in my suit walking out I was like uh, give me a scotch on the rocks scotch on the rocks <laughs> at the time I felt like James Bond oh, wow. and I remember, I remember he told me the price and I nearly threw up at the bar <laughs> I had it and then I was like you know, I, I quite enjoyed it but I had it nobody heard me order it so I felt really sad yeah. uh, and then snuck out in the Balmoral I went to the local co-op I bought a litre bottle of Smirnoff ice tanned it behind the bins we went we then stumbled back into the Balmoral and had a fantastic night but it all started on that good old famous grouse on the rocks there you go hey. that's, that's, a, that's what brought me to where I'm today you said grouse you know what if anyone is it Edrington that still have is it Edrington that have if anyone from everyone from Edrington that famous grouse is listening we still are sponsorless okay, so. grouse is doing well as well so. grouse is as I mentioned every single week on this podcast listen Cody absolutely fantastic to pleasure have you. to be here thank boys. you so much and thanks again for the invites to the wedding Thanks for the bottles that you brought in with us. Uh, with, with you. It's been fantastic having you on. Clap them in, actually. Well done, Cody. That was fantastic. And uh, thanks for sitting on my knee for this whole episode. It's <laughs> been great. Listen, guys, thanks for listening to the Whiskey Stories podcast. Don't forget, please like and share and pass that pod around. Let everybody know. If you know anyone that likes whiskey, let them know. The more that, we, the more that you pass us around, the, the more we'll grow up. Thank you so much for listening to the Whiskey Stories podcast with myself, Graham Clare, I've got Angus the Whiskey fan, Ross Barr, and of course, Cody Reynolds. Uh, it's been great. Cheers, guys. Thank Cheers. you. Bye-bye, guys.